Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with the artist and writer, Celia Paul. She's an artist and painter, as you mentioned, and her latest book is this beautiful sort of mixture of memoir and epistolary one-sided correspondence with another female artist named Gwen John. Yeah, I thought it was very, very beautiful. And it was very nice to see both Celia Paul's paintings and Gwen John's paintings and this kind of reach across time between the two of them and their their likenesses and the kind of parallels of their lives. And as someone who has writers in my mind who I think of who are no longer alive and who I never met, but feel very close to, it's nice that you can give yourself the the license to to write to them, to actually address them. Yeah, I think everybody probably feels this way that they have artists or or writers that they kind of feel are theirs and that you maybe already have some kind of like implicit internal sort of correspondence that you might be having with them already. And then, and Celia Paul sort of just makes it this a really beautiful, explicit sort of correspondence. So, and she's also really lovely to talk to. She was wonderful to talk to. Yeah, very special. Yeah, should we get to it? Yeah, but before we do, I want to say to you, goodbye. <laughs> it's, well, it's not really, it's not really goodbye. I am going to be going on maternity leave for a couple of months. I'll be yeah. back. Okay, I'll good. be back here and there for some special shows. Yes, I'm looking and forward to that. Me too. And I'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming and interviewing in September. So it's not for too long. Few, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, I'll definitely miss seeing you here in the Zoom. Me too. Yeah, and talking to people with you. But I wish you a, a wonderful maternity. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Yeah, and and we'll miss you. I'll miss you guys too. But I'll be back very soon. Well, till then, let's listen to the show. We're so happy to have Celia Paul join us today. Celia Paul is an artist and a writer. She's one of the most important contemporary painters in Britain. Her work has been exhibited all over the world, most recently in a major solo show called Celia Paul, Memory and Desire at the Victoria Moreau Gallery in London. Paul's paintings are often intimate portraits of people and landscapes she loves, as well as a series of powerful self-portraits. Her first book, aptly titled Self-Portrait, was released in 2019. It's a memoir of her childhood in India, her time as an art student in London, and her intense and difficult love affair with the painter Lucian Freud, whom Paul met when she was 18 and Freud was 55. They eventually had a son together. Her new book, Letters to Gwen John, can be called an epistolary memoir, addressed to the Welsh artist Gwen John, who lived and worked in Paris in the late 19th and early 20th century. Celia Paul explores the connections between herself and John, who was also a passionate defender of her own artistic practice, as well as the lover of a much older, much more established man. In John's case, that was the sculptor and painter Auguste Rodin. In her letters to John, Celia Paul considers what it means to be a woman and an artist, a mother and a romantic partner. Celia Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
Celia, I, I was wondering if you could start by just telling us a bit about Gwen John, who she was when she worked, and how you learned about her work. Well, I'm really not a Gwen John expert. I think my love of Gwen John is through her art. I have read about her life, but it's really through her paintings that I know her. And it's quite a difficult thing to say when I first started to feel particularly connected to her. But our lives have run quite parallel. She was born in Wales, in a Pembrokeshire coastal town. And I think her date, she was born, I think it was 1876. I'm quite bad on dates, actually. So, But I know she died on September the 18th, 1939, at the age of 63. So if that works time-wise, I think that's when she was born. And at the age of eight, her mother died. And that had a profound effect on her throughout her life. She never really got over the loss. And her mother had been a painter. And it was through her mother that she really started to love painting from early on as a child. And her brother, Augustus, was also a painter. He went to the Slade School before she did, the Slade School of Art in London. And then she joined him there a couple of years later. And he was quite easily recognised and termed a genius from very early on. Whereas she was kind of encouraged, but never given that kind of acknowledgement. She had a great gift from early on. She was very precocious. She had an easy way of kind of capturing the essence of what she saw. And there was nothing kind of showing off about it at all. You felt from early on, it was a private thing and she didn't really need an audience, whereas her brother was very much the opposite. Her brother, Augustus, was very encouraging to her. His easy success meant that he was accepted into the English art world very quickly. And he was always encouraging Gwen John to show her work with him and in prestigious galleries and things, which she was quite reluctant to do. She resisted his influence and eventually felt claustrophobic by his possessiveness about her, I suppose. And she went to Paris when she was a young woman and met Auguste Rodin, who was an established sculptor, the most famous sculptor of his day in Paris. And she modelled for him and began a long relationship, a passionate affair with him. But towards the end of his life, they became more and more separate and she became more and more separate. And in the end, her life became more and more reclusive. So at the very, very end, she was almost a total recluse. She set up a studio in Murdon, not far from where Rodin's studio 
also was. And Meudon is a suburb of Paris. And when she knew she was dying, she wanted to have one last sight of the sea. So she travelled from Paris to Dieppe, but collapsed there and died in Dieppe. And her grave is there. I don't know if that's enough information. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a helpful walk through her life and some of her work. No, I had never heard of her before this book. Is she well known in England? Is she someone that you saw in museums? How did you come to know her work? You see, this is so difficult. I feel that I've always known her. So it's difficult to say the exact moment when I kind of felt a particular connection to her. But when I did, something about her work really resonated with what I also wanted to do. Her work is quite unrecognized. Surprisingly, I think one of the biggest collections is in the Yale Center for British Art. But otherwise, her work, she's got two small paintings in the Tate and quite a large body of work in the Museum of Wales. And one of the most beautiful paintings is in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, and it's called The Convalescent. And it's about the size of a small book. It's a very, very small painting, but it's a highly charged painting. It's difficult to describe the power that that painting has, almost a similar sort of power to a Vermeer painting, that intense focus. And it has this extraordinary spiritual quality, not unlike an Agnes Martin painting. And you don't need to really know about Gwen's life to know that she was a a very spiritual person and God became more and more important to her as she got older and the idea of God. And I myself grew up in a religious family. When I first went to the Slade, my father was head of a religious community on the North Devon coast, you know, not too far away from the Pembrokeshire coast. And it was for me, as well as for Gwen, the beauty of nature that first inspired us, I think. And this feeling of light, both the light, you know, from the sky and the sea, but also a more kind of mysterious spiritual light is something that defines her work and that is very important to me too. And I think it was this kind of um, privacy of her work that really attracted me. Could you talk a little bit about the circumstances under which you began writing these letters to her that eventually became this book? Well, I never expected to write any books at all. I'm a painter. But I wrote my first book, Self-Portrait, when I was in my sort of late 50s. And I think what kind of spurred me to write at all was that My lover, Lucian Freud, died in 2011. And shortly after that, well, a few years after that, my mother died. And I think, especially with my mother, it made me feel that I needed to make 
a whole of my life, a complete life. Because when somebody dies, it's not just how they were when they were an old person. It's their whole life they have to embrace. And so I wanted to kind of connect again with a young woman who wrote occasional notes in her diary when the feelings of being involved with a much older man kind of overspilled. And then it was also to do with, after Lucian's death, I was sort of shocked by reading obituaries about how, if I was referred to at all, I was referred to as his muse. And it didn't mention that I was a painter, even though I've dedicated my life to painting. And I thought I need to address this and change this. And I think because painting is such an oblique, mysterious art, if you need to change something specifically, you actually need to write about it. And I felt I wanted to change how the world saw me. And I think for me, the most powerful bits in self-portrait are actually those diary entries, which kind of live in the constant present. You know, the way that diaries do, they record what's sort of happening now or has happened very recently. And so I wanted to do something similar with letters to Gwen John. I thought a letter is also something that lives in the constant present. You write to somebody from where you are now and what is happening to you now. And so I wanted to have that sense of immediacy. And I thought also that with an artist, an artist kind of does defy time. You say Rembrandt is a great artist. You don't say Rembrandt was a great artist. So in that way, to address somebody who is dead, although there's something artificial about it, it is also, it didn't feel contrived to me because for me, Gwen's art is in the constant present as well. You know, the book deals so beautifully with that, the kind of open, you know, an artwork also seems in some ways like this open-ended letter that lasts through time. It doesn't seem so out of the blue that you would be writing letters to someone whose work speaks to you from the past in the present. There's a part where you say, you know, the language of painting is this subterranean language that speaks to lost souls, which I thought was so beautiful. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that sensation that painting speaks to lost souls kind of across time. Well, I felt it most powerfully when I, I went to New York for the first time. Hilton Owls had arranged an exhibition at Gallery Met, and I flew to New York. I'm not a traveller. I don't like travelling. I get incredibly overpoweringly homesick when I go abroad. And I was frightened in New York and really, really didn't want to go out of my hotel room. But I did venture out to the Frick Museum and stood in front of Rembrandt's self-portrait. You know, the one where he's wearing, you know, a gold, but he's an old man. But he looks out at you with this expression of infinite compassion and wisdom. 
And somehow looking at that painting, I felt I had a place in the world after all. I wasn't as lost as I thought I was. There's also this other part where you um, you mention a light in a painting, and it's a light that you recognize. I think it's by Hammershoy, I believe. Hammershoy, yes, the Danish yes. artist, yes, yes. Yes, and so it's when you see you know, the light in that painting, you know that same light. I thought that was also a very moving idea. And even looking at, in the book, some of Gwen John's paintings are included alongside of yours. And it would be hard at times. There's certain paintings of hers aren't so reminiscent of yours, but then other ones are. And and even a self-portrait that she has of herself on a bed, I thought, you know, actually looked a lot like you. So... Do you feel like time, the kind of constraints that we put around time really are erased in artwork? I'm sure of that. I'm sure of the truth of that. I think there is a unifying quality to light. I think there's a particular quality to northern light that Vermeer has and Hammershoy has and Gwen John has and a lot of London painters have as well. And it's very, very different to the quality of light in, you know, in the south of France, say. Part of the reason why Van Gogh went to the south of France was to get away from that northern light, to free himself from it. But I also think there are kind of patterns of people who share a kind of intimacy that can break all time barriers. and. I do feel connected to Gwen in quite a physical way. I do feel that I look a bit like her, and I think she might feel I look a bit, she looks a bit like me. And I think there are women I've met. I mean, I think, Kate, you look quite Gwen (laughs) to me as well. (laughs) And I think there is a kind of a mysterious quality that expresses itself through physical means and through the materiality of paint, which does break through time. Gwen John had to, and I'm not sure if she would characterize it as a sacrifice, but she, as you said earlier, she really secluded herself in order to do her work. She didn't seem to require an audience, certainly not as much as, as you said, as her brother seemed to. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your own relationship to painting and the kind of sacrifices that you write about in this book. I think the biggest one is when you had a child, you had your son, you left him and you returned back to your work. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, about the impulse to do what it takes. Well, I think that the way you lead your life shows in the artwork you make. It's no surprise that Agnes Martin had to live in the middle of the desert to paint those extremely still paintings. And I think you can also tell from Egyptian sculptures that they stood in the middle of the desert. There's that silence enters Egyptian sculpture as well. And I think to produce an intensely focused, quiet work of art, which is what I want to do. You actually need to lead a quiet, focused, solitary life. I don't think there are shortcuts. I don't think however much one 
might want to paint a quiet, intense painting. If you're socializing a lot, you just can't. Somehow, everything that you do feeds into your work and you have to be quite ruthless if you want to be perfectionist, which I do. I think for Gwen, she very early on found that need and fulfilled that need. And I think despite the tempestuousness of her relationship with Rodin particularly, and a lot of other relationships, mostly unrequited, in which she fell passionately in love, she nevertheless channeled all her feeling into her work in this tremendously controlled way and never let anybody invade her space. Even Rodin knew not to set up his easel in her room. And I had to do the same. I've never given my the key to my studio, which is also the flat where I live. So I live and work in the same place. I've never given the key to anybody. It needs to be my own space. And it's partly to do with my need when I'm with people to kind of, well, especially with my son, to be there for him. When I'm with my son, I feel I don't really have needs for myself. <laughs> and maybe one could learn to be more armoured, but I never did. And so I had to make this kind of protection for myself in making a space that was only mine. It was a difficult thing to do. And my son did understand. And we're very, very close now. His teenage years were the most difficult for me when he did actually live with me. My mother helped me bring him up and he lived with her throughout his early childhood but then in his adolescence, she could no longer cope and he came to live with me in London. And that was extremely difficult. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Celia Paul, author of Letters to Gwen John. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have author Douglas Stewart on the line with us today. Douglas is the author most recently of Young Mungo, and he joins us to give us this week's book recommendation. So Douglas, what book are you recommending? Oh, a book I really love is As Meat Loves Salt by Maria McCann. I love that book too. It's one of my <laughs> favorites. Can you give our listeners just a little sense of what it's about? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, it's it's a book that I read back in the early 2000s, but it is historical fiction. It is a romance. It is set in the 17th century in England at the time of the English Revolution or the Oliver Cromwell's army, uh, 
rising up to unite the three kingdoms. And we follow our protagonist, who is Jacob Cullen, who is a manservant in a large stately home. We meet him on the day of his wedding, where he's going to marry another servant. And something disastrous and horrific happens on that day, which Mm -hmm. sends Jacob running. He goes off to baptize himself in the bloods of war, as uh, no one should. And (laughs) while while he's fighting for England and, and Going across the country, he falls in love. He meets and falls in love with another foot soldier called uh, Christopher Ferris. The men are from two different classes, which is a really interesting mm-hmm. facet to the story. But it's a tale of obsession. It's a tale of love. And when they come out of the army, they begin a program of land reform, almost of communal farming. But then this is when Jacob's history comes to revisit him. All of his ghouls come back from the past. And the men have to face up to all the horrible things that Jacob has done. But it's a book about wrath. It's a book about obsession. Uh, it's I can't recommend it enough. And as I remember, that book is also quite steamy. If I'm remembering correctly, I, I know that's what stuck out to me when I read it so many years ago, because it's what it's 2003, I think, right? That's right. Yeah, it's very steamy. It's it's my version of a bodice ripper. Yeah. Um, but, I think, <laughs> but I think for anyone that likes Wuthering Heights and fell in love with Heathcliff, you'll find a version, a queer version of this here. But it's also got the literary quality of a Hilary Mantel novel, because I believe Maria McCann was a historical scholar. And so she builds the world accurately and in painstaking detail. And so you can really step into England of the 17th century and feel the battle and feel the passion and then feel the, the sort of the, the backbreaking work of farming. It's, it's a really immersive novel. I love that and could not agree more. So Douglas, can you give us the author and title one more time? The book is As Meat Loves Salt by Maria McCann. Thank you so much. That was our book recommendation this week from author Douglas Stewart, who is the author most recently of Young Mungo. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Celia Paul, author of Letters to Gwen John. I was so interested by um, something you say here. You're talking about, you know, women, a lot of them writers who are inspirations to you. And, you know, you you note that none of them had children. So they never became mothers. They remained daughters. And mm-hmm. something about the position of um, of noticing and, and all their attention being able to be focused and channeled onto, you know, what what they found curious as opposed to this kind of more... A split attention of, of the mother where the maybe the consciousness is, is not quite as intense because it's distilled into another person. Yes. And so, of, of course, you know, I, I, I completely understand that. But then I, I think I thought at the same time, it was interesting that both you and Gwen John had had these times with very, demand, I would assume, demanding men who needed a lot from you and who you were so passionately involved with. And um, I did wonder about the kind of autonomy in in those situations, even though these were artists, so they they also wanted to be alone a lot. But both of of you, you know, working for them as models and actually not having them be very predictable. So you write with, with Lucian Freud that, you know, you never quite knew when he would come to see you. And, um, I wondered about that uh, and how that would pull on attention. 
Yes, so that's a very interesting and complex question. And it has a lot to do with the nature of desire, which I'd like to kind of think more about. And I explore a lot of it in the Gwen John book. Part of the advantage is that for me, Lucien Freud understood completely my need to be solitary because he felt it himself. When he bought me my flat, which is my studio, he wanted to kind of set up his easel there and and work from the views because it's got wonderful views from the windows. And I absolutely was alarmed by this and said uh, he he definitely could do no such thing. And he was very, very understanding because he said he would feel exactly the same thing. So to be connected to somebody and involved with somebody who understood what it means to be an artist on that very, very deep level and understand the necessity of privacy was extremely freeing, although it obviously was tying in another way. But to have been with somebody who expected more um, from a domestic point of view, for me to be involved, you know, in a more equal domestic relationship, even now, that's something I just simply don't think would suit me at all. With my husband, Stephen Kupfer, that was the premise that we would lead very, very separate lives. But I don't think I would have had the courage to demand this if I hadn't already experienced this um, quality of separateness with, with Lucian. Struck me in the book, when you talk about painting and painting loved ones in particular, and you, you've painted your sisters and your mother, um, your husband, uh, and Lucian and, and yourself. And I'm, I was wondering about what that, in some ways, if you could just describe what that's like to paint a loved one versus uh, painting someone you barely know. Um, I think if I paint somebody I barely know, I know I'm much more literal. I need to kind of measure the distance between their eyes and get their, you know, their nose and mouth in the right place and and everything. And um, it restricts me because if I get a likeness, then I feel I've got the painting. Whereas if I paint somebody I know intimately, it's given to me and I can just be much freer in my um, representation of them. I can get their presence rather than their literal likeness. And I feel I can get much closer to who they actually are. And I think it's very striking, particularly with my own work, that I think anyone can tell when I love a person or when I hardly know them. It's something that comes across very, very strongly. And I'm not sure how that happens, but there's just more power 
to um, the presence of a person I, I love. And I'm not a social person and I have a very limited number of people that I, I do know intimately and that I do love. And I very rarely meet people that I feel that deep connection to. And actually to be a model, you have to kind of be there for the person. And I have to be tremendously demanding um, of my model's time. And I can't bear people being late or else kind of being distracted when they're sitting for me. They have to be there for me as I am for them. So it's a, a particular quality of attention to do with their attention on being there for me and my attention on them. It's a very highly charged thing. And it's not at all to do with a commissioned portrait, say, which is very often involves a kind of flattery because it's it's um it's always quite exciting to see representations of oneself <laughs> um but that's sort of beside the point when in what i'm doing if that makes sense yeah i i wanted to ask you about um painting from life uh and you know and kind of contrast that to the way you write you studied at the Slate Art School, you were saying, and 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 there was a lot of emphasis on the importance of, of painting from life, capturing reality, and you kind of didn't completely feel that that was your path and that you wanted to be able to have a little bit more imagination about how you depicted what was in front of you. I wonder how, what correlation that has with your with your writing process. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I think um, I did feel very restricted by life drawing classes at the Slade. I, I still don't understand why people do life life drawing. Um, and I think that was part of the connection I felt to Lucian from the beginning, because he also painted people that he knew intimately, although because he was much more uh, social than me. He had a far wider circle of people that he worked from. But I, I also felt constricted by his, um, dogma of, um, he said concentration is everything and that, you know, he, he only ever worked from life. And he felt that in some way it was artistic, which was a, a dirty word for him to do anything different. Um, and I um, always felt that I wanted to do something that involved what I did and paintings that mattered to me, like Van der Weyden and um, Grunewald and Dürer to some extent, um, involved the visionary as well. And this is something I wanted to explore in my painting. And when it came to writing, I wanted to involve the visionary, um, in my writing as well, so that, um, you know, these almost sort of appearances, Gwen kind of appears to me on an occasion throughout the book. And 
I have a very, very strong sense of her, not only her um, physical appearance, but, you know, I, I have a very strong sense of her. But I think one of the most powerful bits for me in my Gwen John book are the notebooks, I, uh, the, the diary, almost like a, an artist's journal that I wrote while I went back to Pembrokeshire. I, I went to stay in this cottage in Pembrokeshire where I've been um, going to ever since I was a child of seven regularly. And it's the nearest thing to a home I've ever really had because my family throughout my childhood, we moved about so much. So I never really had a childhood home. But this cottage in Pembrokeshire came to signify home for me and for all my sisters, um, which again is another connection to Gwen. And I went back there in the September of the pandemic, in September 2020, and I made note, notes every day of the time that I was there of what I saw in front of me, you know, the the animals there, the horses, the sheep, and all the plants and the fields. It's the most magical place. But I think the quality of my writing became particularly intense because I wrote about exactly what was in front of my eyes. And I think in that way, that passage of writing is the nearest thing to a painting in the, in the book for me. There's a point in the book where this is a little bit of a different subject, but there's a point in the book where you write, male artists are very competitive with each other. As, as a woman artist, you can choose to enter the ring with the men, or you can choose to step quietly outside the ring. You and I have done this. The you is, is Gwen John. And all of the women artists I feel most deeply connected to have done the same. Women hold this great, mainly untapped source of inner strength. I thought that was such a, um, such a lovely way to put something that um, that I think many women have done. And I was wondering what, what you think it means to step outside the ring, to not be competitive, even while being ambitious, because I, you don't deny being ambitious and wanting to be known as an artist. Um, what, what's the, is there a tension there between stepping yes. outside and also wanting to be in? <laughs> Yes, no, there's, there's a, a definite tension. That's another kind of um, source of possible conflict, but possible inspiration as well. Um, I think um, there are a lot of women painters that do paint like men. They've admitted as much. And it's something to do with both the scale and the gestural gestural quality of the paint marks. And I think anyone looking at my work and Gwen John's work would know instantly, even if it wasn't a self-portrait, that this painting was painted by a woman. It's very difficult to describe what that quality is, but it's it's female, and I don't think it necessarily is um, 
connected entirely to gender. I think there are male artists too that paint like women. Um, I think Morandi, for example, um, you could say he painted like a woman. And um, and I think um, actually some some of um, Rembrandt's paintings could be painted by a woman. And it's some quality to do with not being the the emphasis not being on scale, but to do with intensity of focus. And I think it needs to be more addressed this this whole thing of scale because this is where kind of the competition comes in, you know, the, the, these huge canvases and um, because I think a small painting can hold as much power as a, as a big one. And this is where you can step outside the ring by painting small. And that's actually something that Lucian Freud also can do or did do a, a lot when he was younger. Those, um, those early works, uh, you know, the ill in Paris and they hold such power, even though they, they're tiny works. And I think um, they also have a kind of different quality, which is stepping outside the ring as well. Oh, I'm thinking of all the painters who definitely don't paint like women. They're all <laughs> running through my mind. <laughs> um, and, and some who do. Uh, I, I wanted to maybe, you know, close with talking a little bit about loneliness and the the life that you describe and the kind of uh, isolation and uh, quiet to make work. You know, it's of course, it's a privilege and I think that it's a chosen life, but it's not that it's so easy. You know, I, I think you you give room to describe that it is painful and, and you can feel very lonely at times. And um, I'm sure anyone who who makes work can kind of relate to to some aspect of that, that it's, it's what you have to do. It's not always what you want to be doing. And I'm wondering if, if the kind of fellowship with past artists, with Gwen, John, if that, you know, makes a difference in those moments, if, if, if thinking of yourself as a kind of part of a lineage, you know, of, of women artists, of artists in general, if, if that, makes you feel less alone at times when you when you're in your studio and sequestered or if that's not much consolation at all i think it's a, it's a great consolation i think um it's of immense importance and painting is a language and it breaks through barriers of time um and i think um gwen john said something wonderful she said that one must live one's life consciously. And then she says, with fearlessness. And I think it's a decision. And I think to know that it's a decision gives one courage. And I think the only way to do things is through fearlessness. What a beautiful way to say that. Thank you. Well, Celia Paul, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Lovely to meet you both. We've been speaking with Celia Paul, 
Her new book is called Letters to Gwen John. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Blodden. Thank you.